Today's reading is on Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to 14. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during these days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. This is the word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we ask that we would listen and that you would speak. Of course, with the awareness that I'll be speaking too. And so, Lord, would you silence any word that you wouldn't have us hear? Or would you drag it quickly from our minds? That inasmuch as we're we are hearing your word read to us and as we're seeking to understand it, Lord, would you speak into our lives and would you do a transforming work through your word and spirit that we might be a listening people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That'll do for now. We're addressing the topic of self-talk and meditation, uh, which uh, really, as has been mentioned already, is actually more going to be a talk about self-talk and the spiritual discipline of solitude, Um, and that'll become evident why that's the case in a moment's time. Uh, Biblical wisdom will have you understand that you ought to be pretty suspicious of the way that you talk uh, to others and even to yourself. In Proverbs 18 and verse 2, it says, The fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing their own opinions. Just loves it. Nothing better than sharing what's on their mind to others. And, um, and of course, self-talk is really uh, that inner dialogue that we have as we address ourselves so often. Um, And, of course... Airing that in the public arena, while well, that's fine. But of course, there's far more that goes on in that conversation in our own hearts than uh, is uh, really ever divulged to the wider crowd. Uh, New Testament wisdom, the book of James, picks up the same idea. It says, brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, but slow to speak and slow to become angry. It's inviting you to think about the speed with which you 
exhale and produce words and the speed with which you inhale and listen and reflect. And it says that we're to be different, categorically different from other people. In fact, so much so that when Paul wants to pick up this idea in the letter that he writes to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, he says, actually, you know what? We battle and we wage war with completely different weaponry. And in fact, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of good. We take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. Every thought that you have, captive to Christ, not just kind of splurted out into the public arena or kept within our minds, but taking every thought, that inner dialogue, and seeing how it reflects and lines up with what Christ says is true about his world and his nature and his character and about you and who you are and your future and your past. And, and I wonder, is that the way that your mind works? Every thought captive and obedient to Christ. Have you got that kind of control over your thought life? Well... How about we, for a moment, talk about our thought life or our self-talk, as we've titled it in this discussion this evening. And I trust that you're on board with the idea that you do talk to yourself. I mean, there's this dialogue that goes on. It's not really in the mirror, but sometimes, I don't know, maybe it is. Uh, And you're just kind of chatting away. You're enthralled with the conversation that you're having with uh, the man or the woman in the mirror. and, uh, And what a great conversation that is. On and on it goes. But I wonder, do you know how much you talk to yourself. And not just the volume, but the depth of the content that you're relating to yourself about yourself. Some of you will be familiar with this. Paul Tripp wrote an article on this concept and he observes this idea this way and says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because nobody talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. You're in an unending, incredibly important conversation with your soul every moment of every day. You interpret and you organise and analyse what's going on inside and outside of you. You talk about yourself, about the, sorry, you talk to yourself about the past, you talk to yourself about the future. You talk to yourself about what you're experiencing in the present. And obviously this is an internal conversation If you had this conversation out loud, they'd probably put you into a ward. But that's why it's so dangerous, because you don't often realise that you're saying things to yourself, but you are. You're saying things to you that will shape your desires and your actions and your theology. And I think we all know it. The way that we have a conversation with ourselves And many of you will know that this is part of my story in some ways. Of course, we all talk to ourselves at one level, but that deep conversation that can get dark. So two years ago, I was suffering with burnout and grappling with depression, and my inner conversation was dangerously sad and deeply misguided. I took a dark journey into self-loathing, and I had that narrative, that conversation down pat, didn't matter what anyone else said to me. It didn't even matter what I said to me that so much because for a season it was difficult for me even to talk myself out of it and harder seemingly to even hear from God at that time. And I wonder if you're familiar with that kind of self-talk, that kind of self 
deprecating, self-loathing or destructive conversation that we have with ourselves. Have you thought about the conversation that you're having with yourself? Maybe a helpful way to think about the issue is to ask whether or not you'd be comfortable with someone listening to a recording of your internal conversation. The one that you had yesterday or last week or maybe one that you were about to embark on on the way home. Actually, the truth is, for most of us, for most of the time, we don't want to listen to that recording of that internal conversation. In fact, to be brutally honest, we we don't want to stop long enough for that voice to even get going. To be alone with our thoughts is uncomfortable at best, and for some of us, it is terrifying at worst. Sorry, should have been paying closer attention to that. That'll do for now. I mean, think about it for a moment. How often you sit with yourself in silence. And to sit there with God in places of contemplation. Have you, like me at times, filled every reflective quiet moment with noise and activity? With productivity and things that will validate you? Uh, My Bluetooth headphones have become something of a symbol of this for me. Just just the very fact that I never have to be quiet. And it occurred to me only this week just how often these things are around my neck. Um, I have to intentionally take them off when I come up to preach because otherwise they would have been on all day anyway. And you know, if you're there, one ear and I'm kind of present, two and you're all gone. It's terrific. See, I, I, I never have to be completely quiet or silent. I'm surrounded and enveloped. And thanks to my service provided, I'm 100% contactable, except for a few spots on the Wakehurst Parkway. But otherwise, I'm notified constantly. My digital world surrounds me with little red dot reminders that tell me that there's something that I'm receiving or there's something that I'm meant to be doing. I never need to be alone or quiet. I'm able to stream another podcast and download another episode. I can be binging on the content and bombarded by the stimulus. And if my self-talk does get going, I can easily run into a crowded square of content. The talk radio's back on in the car and the reality TV is keeping it real and there's a busy room full of real people. There's some activity that I could throw myself into. I can fashion something, fix something, create something, help someone until sleep caves in on me and I can safely be silent and unconscious Uh, just for a few hours until I wake and immediately I can be up drowning out any stillness once again. I immediately silence any silence with a life full of engagement. I'm a doer. I wonder if you're at all like me. A lot of the ways that I've done my identity formation has been defined by what I do and what other people think of me in my doing. And a lot of people are like me. But that's not the biblical pattern. That is not taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. That's just frenetic activity and noise. It's doing. And I suspect suspect you know this, shared this a lot in the last two years, but there is being before there's doing. You, You do know that, don't you? In fact, you see that pattern regularly throughout the Bible. Features in the lives of people like Abraham, the being before the doing, 
Moses and David and Elijah and John the Baptist and Paul, all clear examples of the pattern. In fact, you can hardly not find that pattern at work. And when you do find it about that pattern not at work, it's destructive. And most amazingly, you see that pattern when God takes on human flesh. And so in Jesus, you watch the perfect human being, perfectly God, perfectly incarnate, and regularly and strategically ensuring that he is being before he is doing. He's withdrawing from crowds and from noise and from capacity to lonely spaces and lonely places. And in those times where he is alone, where everything is silent and he's dwelling in solitude, he's active at work at a spiritually deep level Because it's in those times of solitude that you find him fasting and praying and meditating on God's word. Uh, Think of the reading that we just had from Luke chapter 4. Immediately before this scene where he's taken out into the wilderness or led into the wilderness, he's had this amazing experience where John the Baptist has been baptising people and Jesus, identifying with humanity, steps forward and is baptised. And the scene's remarkable. Unlike everyone else, when he comes Forth out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove and there's a voice from heaven that confirms this incredible identity of the one who's just been baptised. And you hear from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And then you move on through the list of his credentials and the genealogy that follows. But when you get to chapter 4, the next piece of activity, what do you read? That Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. Of course he was. But there he is, a a time of fasting, a time of deprivation. And whilst this isn't a time of punishment, remember he's led there by the Holy Spirit. It is a time of serious testing, where there's exhaustion, exhaustion, where he goes without, and it's a time where he is dependent on God's word. In fact, you see him, as was read from us a moment ago, meeting every temptation that Satan throws at him with a greater confidence in the truth of God's word. He meditates on God's word and pushes it back against the temptations that he faces. And so out into the wilderness he goes. No human contact, and it's formative for him. And then when you look at what happens at the end of that section, in verse 14 and verse 15, he's withdrawn and now he returns. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside and he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Now it's in time for engagement because there's been this empowerment. There's been being and now there's doing. And this is not isolated. You just have to flick through Luke's Gospel and this happens again and again. If you've got your Bibles open, you can jump along and find this. We're in chapter 4, verse 1, and you see that. Then in verse 42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. In verse 16 of chapter 5, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Often. In chapter 6 and verse 12, one of the disciples Sorry, on one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and he spent the night praying to God. 
In chapter 8, 23, he has this incredible time of solitude when everyone else is frenetically trying to save their lives in the storm and he's asleep in the back of the boat. In chapter 9 and verse 10, now the disciples are sharing in this practice and they withdraw along with Jesus. In verse 18 of chapter 9, once when Jesus was praying in private, in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 9, verse 28, now he goes with three disciples. He takes Peter, John and James with him and they go to a mountainside to pray and there Jesus is transfigured. And, and then interestingly and amazingly, in chapter 21 and verse 37, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple And each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. This is all amongst the time where Jesus is leading up to his crucifixion. And every day his practice is withdrawal and engagement. Withdrawal and engagement. Chapter 22, verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And that night he'll pray that the cup might be taken away from him. But not his will, but God's will. He withdraws because he's about to engage and he'll engage with a journey that will take him to the cross. Now, if Jesus needs that kind of practice, if he sees the value of it, then what makes us think that we do just fine without being silent? Or that all the noise and all the clutter... Look, it's happened again. kept going on around us and making us kind of bombarded and just surrounded on all of that grace. What, what makes us think that we would do well without times of solitude and peace? See, over the last few years, I've become increasingly aware how much I need times of solitude and how helpful they are for me. Because it's a space to hear God's voice better. You get away from the noise and from other human voices, and there's something about hearing God more clearly. I mentioned already that you see this as this constant biblical theme. But you think about Elijah. He has this incredible encounter with the prophets of Baal, and then he feels completely on his own, and he then is sent on a very long, slow walk all the way to Mount Horeb. But it's a good distance, but he takes 40 days and he's travelling like just a couple of kilometres a day. But think of that, the speed and the pace of that journey. And then when he gets there, he hears God speak to him in a quiet, whispered voice. He's to stop and to slow down and to take time in complete isolation. He's withdrawn to be reminded that he'll engage again and that he's not alone as God's prophet set aside to minister. Habakkuk, same thing happens. Chapter 2 and verse 1 of Habakkuk is instructed to stand guard and to silently keep watch and to see what God would say to him. Paul gets converted, amazing Damascus Road experience and then is whisked away for a protracted time to Arabia, where he is able to consolidate his understanding. It's time alone with God. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 17 and following. And all of this draws our attention to what's at the heart of Christian meditation, of what it is to find time in a day, in a week, in a life, to be with God, to in solitude 
to purposely abstain from interacting with others and with our self-talk, to deny ourselves companionship in order to interact with God and to hear from Him. And that's a distinctively wonderful gift that God gives us to meditate and spend time with Him, listening to Him and waiting upon Him. And it's actually distinctly different from what other people think about meditation to be, especially when you compare it to Eastern expressions of that idea. We meditate on what God has said to us. And so when we meditate properly and take solitude well, our cells reflect on what our minds have ingested. You think about the pattern that we're called to worship God by the renewing of our minds. There's an intellectual thing that's going on as we spend time doing this discipline, that there's content going in. And so we've truly meditated when we slowly read and reflect and prayerfully take in what God has revealed to us in his word and in his world and in his character. You think about how much the Psalms address this theme again and again. Your word, it's a light to my path. I'll meditate on it day and night. Way back in the book of Joshua, Joshua is a commander in this way. It says, let the book of the law not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that it is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. And of course, it's not just that God conveys truth about himself in his world. Word. He shows it in his character and in his actions. Think of how he has acted throughout human history and then look to his creation and to see what he is like. And we meditate upon these truths collectively. Unlike in Eastern meditation, which is going to advocate that we empty our minds, Christian meditation calls us to fill our minds with God and his truth. Sam Storm writes a really helpful article about this and uh, interacts with Christian meditation. He observes this. He says, unlike Eastern meditation, which advocates detachment from the world, Christian meditation calls for attachment to God. If the believer disengages from the distractions and allurements of the world, it's in order that they might engage with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Unlike Eastern meditation, which advocates visualisation in order to create one's own reality... Christian meditation calls for visualisation of the reality already created by God. Unlike Eastern meditation, which advocates physical union with God, Christian meditation calls for spiritual communion with God. Unlike Eastern meditation, which advocates an inner journey to find the centre of one's being, Christian meditation calls for an outward focus on the objective revelation of God in Scripture and creation. Unlike Eastern meditation, which advocates mystical transport as the goal of one's efforts, Christian meditation calls for the moral transformation as the goal of one's efforts. Here is this way that God actually equips us and enables us as we spend time and meditate with him. And in all of that is to summarise to say it's, it's active, this pursuit in solitude. And in spending time with God, it's not passive. It might look like withdrawal, but it's a withdrawal in order to be active in the space that we occupy with God alone. So Eastern meditation might advocate mental passivity. Christian meditation calls on us to actively exert our mental energy. 
And if you want to think about what that looks like, I don't think you find a more beautiful picture than what Paul says to the church in Philippi. He says, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, right, pure, lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think, dwell, dine out on such things. If you want to peer deep into something that's going to reflect something that is helpful, then it's into that space that we're at to occupy our minds, dwelling in that space. And perhaps you want to think about some of the practical aspects of that. Like for how long? Well, well, I don't know how long. I just say it ought to be enough time that you're sitting still long enough for the sediment to settle and for things to become clear. It's what that's about. That that process actually does take time. But so often we just get back in and just, too busy, too much going on, and it never settles. And things never get clear. How long? I don't know how long, long enough will be. 20 minutes might feel like it's impossible for you to be quiet. 10 minutes might be the limit. But it's interesting that for a long time in the Christian tradition, there's been this idea of finding each day a quiet time. A quiet time. It's focusing on the solitude, allowing time for reflection. And, And that might mean that you might find an entire day to be able to let things settle, or even an extended season where you may be able to do that. Of course, some people push that to extremes, don't they? There's a long history, even in the Christian tradition, of people that withdrew completely and kind of prided themselves on their capacity not to talk for decade after decade. And they would deprive themselves of everything. They'd sit themselves on long, high poles and have their food hoisted up and their excrement dropped down. Not a great idea. Remember, withdrawal for engagement. And the engagement isn't just dropping on other people, right? It's, it's genuine engagement. See, how long? Well, I don't know how long. But how often? Well, I don't know that either. And as soon as you build a rule around this stuff, then you break it. Here is a pattern that you're invited into. But do notice that in Jesus, you do see it to be a regular practice that he's known for, that he is often withdrawing to a solitary place to commune with his father. And you see that it intensifies in his life around critical points in his ministry. And so for me, daily I try and find time. It's usually around 15 to 30 minutes and I walk generally for most of that. I've actually found that the pattern of walking, the rhythm of that, is really important for me. Otherwise I find myself easily distracted. But then I'll sit and I'll take time and I want to find space daily. Not much, but enough. And then weekly, on my day off, I've become much more disciplined of what I've now come to call retreat myself. And uh, I retreat myself for about two or three hours on my day off where I don't talk to anyone. I isolate myself and I just intend to spend time with God. And it is a treat, but it's not always fun. I'll come back to that in a moment. So I think there's patterns for us daily and weekly and then there's patterns, I think, that are bigger than that, annually. 
I have a mentor and for most of his ministry he has disappeared for some days throughout his life where he takes uh, uh, God with him, himself, a Bible and a notebook and a tent and enough food for the time that he's away and water and no agenda at all. And he just sits, goes bush and then he comes back two days, three days later. I did this during my time off when I was suffering with burnout and it was horribly helpful. It was one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my life, but incredibly instructive. And I want to do more of that. Time where I can isolate myself and be in solitude. Time with God. And you might sit there and think, well, I wonder, how is this really a discipline? Isn't that just kind of kicking back on a beach? And for the last few weeks, that's exactly what it's looked like for me. I can show you the photo if you like. But I've got to tell you, it doesn't feel good necessarily in the moment. Because you are setting aside that instant gratification of being with others and having companionship and all that feeds into you from that space. And who likes doing that? In fact, the truth is the benefits of solitude and silence might not be evident in the practising of them, but not until you come out of it and re-enter life. But it tends to be the case that I re-enter karma and I'm able to process a little bit better and I'm less anxious and I'm more spiritually awake. Henry Nguyen, who was a a Catholic theologian, uh, died last century, says this. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract. Just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken. Nothing. It's this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I'm worth something. But that's not all. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas disturbing images, wild fantasies and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies and dream lustful dreams in which I'm wealthy and influential and very attractive or poor and ugly and in need of immediate consolation. The task is to persevere in my solitude to stay in my cell until all my seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and leave me alone. Does that resonate with anyone? It does with me. And and it's true that actually it's challenging because there's so many things that want to defeat this idea of finding solitude and silence and meditating with God. My first one is I always want to do something. It's that doing-being relationship. I just think this isn't very productive. This isn't a good use of time. And then I flip across and I think, but people are depending on me. And that's true, isn't it? For some of us, we'll listen to this and we'll think this is going to be impossibly difficult because of the stage and age of life that we're in. It's really hard to even contemplate how you could mark out any kind of time. It, It might actually be good for us to think, though, how we might be able to help one another out in this area and free up those people who will find it hard to take an afternoon or a day away and find a place of solitude. You think of young mums and young dads. You think of others who are caring for those people who have needs. To give respite. 
Of course, the other thing that happens for me is that my mind wanders in that place of solitude heaps. And I find myself tracing down all kinds of thoughts and not responding and not dealing with those at the time is a challenge. But, but I've come to see that solitude is a kind of companion to fellowship. It's a fasting from other people to make my return to them all the better. And silence is a fasting from noise and talk to improve our listening and speaking. But of course, God doesn't mean for us to fast long from food or fellowship or noise and talk. We're not to be hermits. And so solitude for me and for many is thought of like a container where many of the other practices that we've been speaking of in recent weeks actually fit those times where we can be praying and fasting, times of self-examination and discernment, of journaling. Because here's the thing I know. I'm very good at talking to myself, but I know that my self-talk is often really destructive and full of lies. So this is about surrendering control into a space that actually scares me of solitude and silence and letting go and allowing God to bring what he is going to bring, that I might meditate on him speaking and not just listen to myself for a moment. And of course, this is practicing something that's not going to happen if I'm just passive. I have to structure this because otherwise another day will go by and another month and another year and this thing... This intentional time alone with God will still be a scheduled good idea that's left undone. So I'm working at a pattern. I'm trying to create a rhythm where solitude and silence feature in my life in small ways daily and weekly a little bit more and purposefully at critical times when I need discernment. Of course, that's going to mean saying no to some things, isn't it? Because to achieve silence... Step one is to shut up. Step two is to shut other things up that distract. All the clickbait and all the FOMO that stops you from stopping. And you've got to know that the technology in your pocket is really not your friend. It's not my friend either. Buzzing and clicking and vibrating and reminding you all the time of all the things that have to be done. It's difficult to find clear air. Let me tell you, though, I think there are some places where tech helps. This is an app, PrayerMate, that I use. It does buzz midday every day, and I do find it incredibly helpful of reminding me to draw aside and pray. If you've not checked out that app, go and have a look. It is very helpful. The other thing I found um, helpful from time to time has been some mindfulness apps. Smiling Mind is not a Christian app, uh, but I found it most helpful, especially when I'm most anxious uh, just to be able to slow down and to think and be talked through different forms of relaxation. Been super helpful. Even more helpful has been the work of Ruth Haley Barton. Uh, she's written a number of books, a book called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. That's also a podcast, which you can listen to for hours and hours and hours and blind out all the you know, you know, silence in your life. But uh, it's very, very helpful. Uh, she's also written a book called An Invitation to Silence and Solitude. Very helpful. Um, John Mark Comer, Bridgetown Church, Practicing the Way, has a whole lot of stuff on a lot of disciplines, as does the the Bible Project. And Tim Mackey has a great one on this in his uh, Spiritual Symmetry series where he looks at solitude and community. And then there's the seminal works of Richard Foster, Celebration of Disciplines, and Dallas Willard, The Spirit of the Disciplines, that are incredibly helpful. 
In all of this, it's to say that there's things that are buzzing around you and going around you that you will need to say no to and there are some things that are helpful that will feed into your life. Of course, as we come to think about this, it'll also mean saying no to your pride because part of us believes that we need to be on deck 24-7, always on call, otherwise things will fall apart. And I just want to point out that that's exactly what happened to Moses You remember he's called to go and commune with God at Mount Sinai. He withdraws and during that time the people are like, oh, whoops, you wouldn't believe what happened. Uh, We we smelted all of our jewellery and then out popped this golden calf and we've started worshipping that. Things fell really badly apart and Moses still should have been with God at that time. He's to go anyway. Things will fall apart and we trust that God knows that. As we conclude, I wonder... Would you ask yourself, are you willing to persevere in your solitude until the monkeys in the banana tree give up and leave you alone so that you can hear God? See, I want to make time to be present with God, to stop long enough that things would settle out and become at least a little bit clearer. I I want to be about letting go that I might look intently into God rather than me looking intently into me as in a mirror, but rather that that might be replaced by a window that I could see through into God's reality. And that's exactly what James, the brother of Jesus, says is good wisdom. James 1:22. Do not merely listen to the word of God and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he's like. But whoever looks intently, change the word to meditates, on the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, will be blessed in what they do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Would you meet us in quiet places? Would you call us that we might withdraw, that we might demonstrate a faithfulness to the calling that you have for us and recognise that you are the one who orders our life? Lord, we can make ourselves so busy. Would you draw us aside, that we would be less focused upon ourselves and less tuned in to the voice in our own head, less preoccupied with ourselves, reflecting back our thoughts to us, but instead looking through you and your word into how you have made this world and how we are to be. Lord, that we might surrender all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.